0: me to God's Word now. Let's look together at Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. I'm not going to do the whole chapter saying I'm going to do chapter 11 of Hebrews. is almost like saying I want to do Psalm 119 this morning, and I don't want to do that to you, but I do want to look perhaps at a passage that might be a little less frequently examined uh, than you have considered before verses 5 and 6. As we open the Scriptures, would you bow with me, And let's commend our time and God's word to him. Our father, we thank you for the privilege of taking this scripture and opening it, examining it, understanding it, and we trust being transformed by it. We have sung songs this morning that have exhibited and demonstrated our faith in you, our need of you, our dependence on you and your faithfulness to us. We've just sung Christ, just sung Christ is mine forevermore. What a glorious truth that we have the hope that we will be with him in glory. He belongs to us, but perhaps of even greater import is not that Christ is ours forevermore, but that we are his forevermore. For he has chosen us and decreed us to be his, and he has died for us. And he has called us, and he has effectively called us, and he has brought us into fellowship with him. He has made us part of the universal body of Christ, and he is our head from whom we might never be divorced. And so we belong to him eternally, and that is such a transforming reality. And now as we come to this word this morning, would you continue to transform us and give us hope even while we rejoice this week over a ruling that for some of us was so deeply unexpected for decades. And now you have seen fit in your grace to transform and change a most horrid ruling. Yet we still live in a world that is tremendously broken. There is deep heartache. There are wounds, there is suffering, there is even persecution. And might you give us reason to continue to hold on to the one who holds us in his hand by this word. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. About a year ago, a man named Sirin Kale, a journalist for the British newspaper The Guardian, wrote this. In the past fortnight, I have bought the following items online, a hideous cat tree that takes up most of my living room, a lavender pillow spray, two scarves, a pair of gloves, two candles, a sheet mask, a pair of fleece-lined jogging bottoms, a card holder, and actually this is not a gentleman, this is a woman, I'd forgotten that, I'm not sure of the gender of the name Siren. there you go. Um, a card holder, and under eye brightening cream. None of these purchases were essential. Many of them I haven't even taken out of the packaging, leaving them in a pile by the front door. When COVID hit, I decided no more frivolous purchases. Journalism is a precarious industry at the best of times, but the pandemic just wouldn't Stop. March dragged into June and then into January. My days were flabby and formless. I was bored. So I started buying things online for the small thrill of hitting checkout and having them arrive a few days later, a treat to break up the monotony of yet another day. Maybe you know people like Siren. Maybe you are a people like Siren. Finding your happiness at Amazon. Where do you find your happiness? Where do you find your pleasure? I I know you know the right answers. Um, One of our daughters um, would frequently say when I would ask her a question, she would just kind of roll her eyes and say, Jesus, Dad, Jesus is the answer to everything. So when I ask the question, where do you find your pleasure? I know you know the right answer. Jesus, the Word of God. Christ's people, the church, Godly friends, fellowship. But in your heart of hearts, when things are difficult, when the pressure when the pressure is up and life is hard, where do you go for pleasure? Where do you seek your satisfaction? And just let's be honest with one another, you do seek pleasure and satisfaction. The noted French philosopher Blaise Pascal noted, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, though attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object, This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. Whatever we do, wherever we go, whatever thought runs through our mind, whatever desire we cultivate, we are pursuing pleasure. Those who drink too much alcohol and those who are teetotalers are both pursuing happiness. Those who spend indiscriminately on Amazon and those who are spendthrifts are both pursuing happiness. The question is not, are you pursuing happiness? The question always is, where are you pursuing happiness? What will we pursue in a quest to make ourselves happy? The desire of happiness is true not only in our day, but it has been true in every day. And it was certainly true in the scriptures as well. In the book of Hebrews, the writer of that letter is addressing a group of people who had trusted in Christ, but now were being persecuted because of their faith. Those who were still underneath Judaism were persecuting them and were compelling them to leave Christ and return to the Mosaic law and return to Judaism. And some of them were saying, you know, if we just go back to Judaism, Judaism and Christ are close and maybe that's enough, and if we go back to Judaism and turn our back on Christ and the cross, then we can alleviate ourselves of this suffering and of this persecution. We've gotten a taste of that at the end of chapter 10, right? Um, you were enduring a great conflict of sufferings, he says in verse 32. You were being made a public public spectacle of through reproaches and tribulations, and with those who were suffering those kinds of things, you were lumped together with them. You were imprisoned, you had your property seized, and you had your property taken away, and so you were suffering, though he will say in chapter 12, you were not suffering yet to the point of the shedding of blood. In other words, they were not yet being, being persecuted to where they were losing uh, life and limb, as it were, Yet this persecution was real, and and they were tempted to say, let's just give up on Jesus, let's soften this thing, let's make things easier for ourselves, and let's go back to Judaism. In Hebrews chapter 11, nearing the end of this letter of exhortation, encouragement for these people to stand firm, the author goes back to the Old Testament and he says, those people whom you are trying to go back underneath that Old Testament law that you're trying to go back underneath to escape persecution, by the way, they willingly were persecuted for their faith and they stood firm. And so let's look back, he says, at all these Old Testament examples and see how to stay firm in the faith. And what you'll find in Hebrews 11, you're familiar with this undoubtedly. The individuals in this chapter did not despair, though they were suffering and though they were persecuted for their faith, and they did live dependently on God in adverse circumstances. They endured, they persisted, they thrived. These are real stories with hard circumstances. And so the question for us today is, do, do, do hard times preclude living by faith? And what does a faithful life in hard times look like? It looks like this. The way to live by faith is to live for God's pleasure. The way to live by faith is to live for God's pleasure. When you're suffering and when you're hurting and when there's difficulty and when there's trial and when there are burdens and when you're tempted to say, I'm giving up on Jesus. It's just too much. The call is too great. What these two verses Hebrews 11, 5, and 6 are going to tell us is this. The way to live by faith is to live for God's pleasure. And I want to give you this morning one example of one man who did that and then three principles for living to please God. One example and three principles for living by faith, living for God's pleasure. The example is Enoch in verse 5. Enoch pleased God when he was opposed by the world. Enoch pleased God when he was opposed by the world. One of the most remarkable stories in the Bible is the story of Enoch. It is perhaps not only one of the most remarkable stories, but it's also one of the most unreported stories as well. Apart from this passage and this singular verse in this letter about Enoch and the passage that it is based on in Genesis 5, Enoch otherwise is only mentioned in Jude 14 and in two chronological lists just in passing in 1 Chronicles 1 and Luke chapter 3. So we have this amazing story about an apparently amazing man and yet he is mentioned very, um, very rarely in the scriptures. He is remarkable in two particular ways. Only he and Noah are said by Scripture to have walked with God. Oh, certainly there were other godly men in Scripture. We understand that. But this phrase that we're going to see in the passage this morning, that he walked with God, is used only of him and only of Noah. And then second thing that makes him remarkable is, and you know this as well, only he and Elijah were taken to heaven without death. Every other person that's ever lived on this earth, including our Savior Jesus Christ, has died. But only he and Elijah were taken to heaven without death. Let me note a couple of things about, a couple of realities about Enoch and what made him remarkable. Notice in verse 5 what the writer of Hebrews wants us to know about Enoch's faith. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death and he was not found. Because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And so, right away, the writer notes that Enoch is one who, like the others in this chapter, was living by faith. That is, his life is ordered by faith in God, by, by trusting in God, by, by being dependent on God. And as a manifestation of the faith that he had, the writer notes, he was taken up so that he would not see death. He was taken up. Literally, he was transferred. He was put into another place. What's notable about this is all of us would say, that is so cool. How did that happen? And is he going to give us um, some explanation of of? of the circumstances behind that and the kind of person that Enoch was and is he going to give us more details about how God accomplished that? It's not in the text. He simply notes he was taken up and then he tells us why. What is of notable importance to the writer of the Hebrews is not how it happened or when it happened or where it happened, but what is notable to him is why it happened. By faith, Enoch was taken up. Why? So that... He would not see death. Now, there was a sense in which he saw death, right? I mean, he lived in this world and people around him died. So so he saw and observed others dying, but he did not see the inside of death, as it were. He didn't see death in all of its horror and in all of its difficulty personally, privately. Even our Savior saw The fullness of the horror of death, even greater than any man has ever seen the horror of death, but not Enoch. And then the writer in verse 5 quotes from Genesis 5.24 and he says, And he was not found. Well, that's interesting. It's almost as if like they were wandering around and saying, where's Enoch? Anybody seen Enoch? One of the rituals, now that our children are out of the house, one of the rituals that we go through every night about 9 o'clock, we start looking for the cat. Where's the cat? Has anybody seen Jack? Well, Regine, have you seen Jack? Terry, have you seen Jack? No, I haven't seen Jack. Go outside. Jack, time to come in so the coyotes don't get you. And uh, so we're looking for Jack, and it depends on how hungry he is, whether or not he's going to come. That's kind of what's going on here. Where's Enoch. Anybody seen Enoch? You know, I saw him over there. I saw him over there. I last saw him doing. Where was he? And he was not found. Why? Because God took him up. And that statement, God took him up, up, not only points to the source of his going to heaven. God did it. But the finality of it. He has gone up where he will not come back because God has accomplished it. God has put his seal of finality on it. It's done. It's finished. And there is no going back on God's action. And why did God do that? Why why did God take him up in a most remarkable way? Why did God do for him what he did for no one else save Elijah? Notice the verse in front of us. For, because... He obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. He obtained the witness. The testimony was made about him that he was pleasing to God. Now, who makes the testimony? Now, I can say to you, I, I commend to you your pastor. I know your pastor. He's a man of integrity. He's a man of wisdom. He's a man of perseverance. He's a man of the book. He is a faithful man. And undoubtedly, he would be encouraged. I hope you would be encouraged. Hopefully, you're encouraged to hear another source about that person. But there's no authority behind that. The one who sees the heart of Enoch is the one who makes the testimony about Enoch. It's not as if a bunch of people around said, God, you need to take up Enoch because Enoch is a fine man. God is making the testimony, the witness, the declaration. I'm taking up Enoch because I've examined Enoch and he is pleasing to me. This idea of being pleasing is an idea that actually permeates this chapter. It is Critical to understanding verse 6. We'll see that without faith is impossible to please him. And there's also a warning about the necessity for pleasure at the end of chapter 10. Where he says in verse 38. My righteous one will live by faith. That's how righteous people live. We live dependent on God. Trusting God in every circumstance and every difficulty. And then he warns if he shrinks back. If he pulls back from me, God says, if he withdraws from me, and do you think that might have significant influence or a significant impact on the Hebrew readers who are being tempted to leave Christ, if he shrinks back, he says, my soul has no pleasure in him. People who pull back, you can say, God has no pleasure in him. God has pleasure in those who persist with him, and that is exactly the testimony of Enoch. He walked, he was pleasing to God. Uh, Genesis, in the same passage that's being quoted, Genesis says that he walked with God. It uses that phrase twice of him in Genesis 5, 22 and 24. We'll see that in just a moment. And that little phrase simply means that he lived his life in fellowship with God. It does not mean that his circumstances were easier than anyone else. We know that he was still a husband and a father. We know that he still had to work. We know that he had to grow his food and he had to hunt for his food. We understand he very likely had neighbors and he undoubtedly had difficult relationships because he lived in a fallen world. He had all the responsibilities of life that everyone else had. Note this, he just lived consciously dependent on God he had faith in him his his whole outlook was can I please God can I honor exalt him can I live for him now the account in Hebrews 11 about Enoch is short it's almost equally short in Genesis 5 and that's where I want you to go as well so we've We've understood a little bit about how the writer of the Hebrews is using the story of Enoch. How does Moses think about Enoch? Genesis chapter 5. So go to the front cover and turn right. About 10 pages or so, depending on how much front matter you have. Genesis chapter 5. Now, the story about Enoch is about two-thirds of the way through the chapter. But I want you to notice something else about this chapter before we get to Enoch. Look at verse 1, Genesis 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. So he's telling us, he's about to give um, a chronology of the people who lived after Adam. And when he says, this is the book, he really means something like, this is the story about Adam and all of his, all of the people that followed after him. And the question is, how did they live? Now, as you think about Adam, remember the significant thing about Adam is what? Genesis 3 and the fall of man into sin, right? And then the consequences that fall on man because he has fallen into sin. And that is that death comes into the human race. And so when the writer says in Genesis 5, 1-2, this is the book of the generations of Adam. He is implying this question. What happened to Adam and was the curse in Genesis 3 still active? Did Was God faithful to accomplish the curse against Adam and against sin that he said he would? And as you look back at the story of Adam, there are a couple of remarkable things in these opening chapters of the Bible. One is that there are really actually very few references to Adam particularly. So his name is mentioned only a few times in these opening four chapters. He's mentioned in chapter 2, verse 20. He's mentioned in chapter 3, verse 17, verse uh, 21 of chapter 3, and in chapter 4, verse 25. Those are the only references to Adam by name. And two of those refer to his sin. So how would you like half the references of your life to be, oh yeah, I know him, he's a sinner. Well, that's Adam's legacy. So what happened? Did Adam die? And did others die because of his sin? And you should note that before you get to this chapter, we see death, but we we only see, I'll say, remarkable death. There were three murders prior to chapter 5, but there are no what we would call natural deaths. So there's slaying, killing, vengeance, violence, but no account of anyone dying naturally. So what happened? 5.3. When Adam had lived, so Adam's alive, and he lived for 130 years, he became a father of his own son in his own likeness in his image, and he named him Seth. So we know he had Cain and Abel. And we know how that turned out. And after Cain and Abel, and after Abel died, then another son, Seth, in Adam's 130th year. Verse 5. So all the days that Adam lived, so Adam was alive, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. What about Seth? Seth lived 105 years, so he also was alive. And he became the father of Enosh, verse 9. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Enosh, verse 9. Enosh lived 90 years, and he became the father of Kenan, verse 11. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Verse 12. Kenan, Enosh's son, lived 70 years, and he became the father of Mahalel, Verse 14, so all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. All the way through this chapter, you see, he lived, and he died. He lived, and he died. And and Moses is not being subtle about it. Frankly, it would be enough... If he had simply said, for instance, of Adam, verse 5, so all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, period. And we understand that at the end of the 930 years, he died. But all the way through this, he not only accounts for each of the years that each individual lived, but then he emphasizes the very last thing that's said about him is, and he died. And what's he saying? What about this story about Adam? What about Adam's life? What happened as a legacy for Adam? Was was God faithful to the curse that he promised against Adam? And the writer says, yes, here's Adam's story. The curse is active. Says one writer, the theme of chapter 5 is the end of life. The whole movement... Of these notices is death. And into the midst of that. He inserts the story of Enoch. Verse 21. Enoch lived 65 years. And he became the father of Methuselah. Verse 22. Then Enoch walked with God. 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah and he had other sons and daughters. Now, do you notice anything different that he says about Enoch than he said about everybody else prior? Adam lived. Seth lived. Enosh lived. Kenan lived. Mahalel lived. Jared lived. Enoch lived and walked with God. Enoch didn't just live. Enoch oriented his life in a very particular way around God. His life was lived in conscious fellowship with God in everything that he did. While he lived in the same world that everyone else lived in, he lived differently. His life was a life of particular fellowship with God. What the writer of the Hebrews would say is, Faithful living. In 524, it says, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Instead of saying, and he died, the writer notes, Moses notes, Enoch was transferred to God. And here's the emphasis. Death did not take him. God took him. Death did not overwhelm him, God overwhelmed him. God was not overwhelmed by death, but God overwhelmed death. And God took Enoch to himself because of Enoch's particular orientation of fellowship with him. Can we just say it this way? His delight in him, his pursuit of finding his pleasure in him with God. God took Enoch to himself because he walked with God. The writer to the Hebrews would say that this was Enoch's reward for faithful living with God. Here then, says one writer, is a glimpse of grace in the midst of the spread of sin, death being the result of sin. Here the funeral bell stops tolling. Isn't that good news? One man walked with God and God took him. He escaped the clutches of death. Clearly, the pathway to life, the road one is to travel to escape the sting of death is the one of the pilgrim in which the person walks with God. I want you to notice something else that is not stated by the writer to the Hebrews, though he implies it all through the chapter. And it's not even said by Moses, though if you read it, you understand that it's in the background. And that is the way in which Enoch lived and the context in which he lived. Enoch was the seventh generation after Adam. And Adam's one sin had multiplied many times over and had grown exponentially by the time Enoch was alive. We know from chapter 4, verses 8 and 23, that in addition to the murder of Cain, there were additional murders. We know from chapter 4, verse 19, that there was polygamy on the earth already. We know in four fourteen and 24, that there was vengeance. We know at the end of chapter 4, because after Seth was born, he says, men then began to call upon the name of the Lord, that very quickly after Adam was created and sin entered that very quickly man moved away from calling on the Lord. And so people were anti-God, atheistic, agnostic, uncaring about God. And And Enoch, Moses says, is different from that world. Says one writer, although he lived in a corrupt age, that was headed for judgment by the flood, Enoch did not conform to the standard of the age in which he lived, but he walked in accordance with the standards of God's righteousness. Friends, don't look at Enoch and say, well, he had it so easy. That's not the point. The point is that Enoch lived in a world that was against him. And he shone for God. This is a reminder that things do not need to be right in the world for me to live rightly before God. I don't need to have a sanctified world to live a sanctified life. I, I like you, uh, I, I was absolutely stunned by the ruling that came down from the Supreme Court this week. I don't know about you, but when, the, when it was first leaked, what, about two months ago, that this is the way the ruling was going to go, the skeptic in me... Said, ah, that's just a leak. We'll see what really happens. It's probably going to change. Brothers and sisters, while I rejoice over that, I'm not fooled by that. I'm not fooled about the hatred that's still in the world. I'm not sure. I'm not fooled by the unrighteousness that's still in the world. You don't have to go very far outside the doors of this building to find unrighteousness and opposition. And when we face that, we have every possibility of living pleasing to God, honoring Him and exalting Him in spite of the difficulty of the circumstances against us. A faithful living is the kind of living that doesn't say the world is against me, I can't. Faithful living is the kind of living that says, the world is against me, but God is for me, and he's given me everything I, can to, everything I need to please him, I can. So let's summarize what the writer of Hebrews is doing. The transfer of Enoch to heaven was God's dramatic stamp of approval on, God, on Enoch's faithful life. And it was God's testimony to the world of his grace and kindness, his reward for those who live for him and his provision for the death problem. The the approval of God on Enoch's life is also a reminder that our circumstances don't need to be perfect for us to be faithful. We always have everything we need to be faithful. And this verse is also a reminder of us about God's design and God's purpose for us. There's, There's a hint of it, In chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 in Genesis, right? He says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And then he reminds us about how Adam was created. In the day when God created man, Adam he made him in the likeness of God and he created them male and female and he blessed them and he named them man or Adam in the day when they were created. And we understand that he's talking Genesis one, Genesis two, no sin and fullness of fellowship in the garden. And this, this account about the generation, the book of the generations of Adam is reminding us subtly that God has designed us, created us for fellowship with him, but because of the intrusion of sin, that fellowship has been broken. Is there any hope for the fellowship that's been broken? Is there any hope for the sin problem? Is there any hope for this death problem? Because, hey, great, Enoch was taken to heaven, but... Other than Elijah, it's been a whopping zero others since then. And I would like to be taken to God. Is there any hope for me? Chapter 3 of Genesis. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between you your seed and her seed, and he, the seed, will bruise you on the head, that is, crush you, destroy you, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Savior, Jesus. So Jesus will come and destroy the serpent, destroy sin, destroy death. There's our hope. And friend, if you are here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have a problem. You have the same problem that was in Genesis chapter 5. You will live and you will die. There's no escaping it. As my dad reminds me very regularly, death is one out of one. Everybody dies. There's no escape. So the question is, when you get to the other side, when you get to the spiritual side and not just this physical world, what is your hope for heaven? What is your hope for joy? What is your hope for happiness? It's in Jesus Christ. And friend, if you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, I implore you, I beg you to find your satisfaction in Him. Only He can forgive you of your sin. Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life, Died on the cross, not because he was worthy of dying, for he was the one man on this planet who never deserved to die. Instead, he died in your place, absorbed the wrath of God against you and your sin, paid the penalty of your sin, wrote the check that said, let me, let me cancel the debt of sin against you and provides a means of living for you now. So that you can be changed. You don't have to be ensnared by your sin anymore. Friend, if you've never trusted in Christ, would you say, I'm tired of trying to make it on my own. And would you instead start living by trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Well, there's the example for us about one who lived by faith and lived to please God. Now, let me give you very quickly um, three principles for living to please God. We find that in verse 6. So we've seen the example. You can live to please God. Remember, there was a warning at the end of chapter 10. Don't, don't give up on Christ and become displeasing to God. And then there's the example in verse 5 about one who was pleasing to God. Remember the the, the, the final epitaph of Enoch's life is God said he's pleasing to me and now in verse 6 he tells us how we can be pleasing to him without faith he says it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him very quickly what does it mean to please God uh, that word um, to please or to please God is only used three times in the New Testament in the verb form. The, um, the adjective is used a number of other places, about a, a half dozen or more times in the New Testament. It simply means to, to delight in someone or to delight another person, to give satisfaction to another person, to be acceptable to another person. And what's interesting about this word is when it's used in the New Testament, it's always, almost always used with God as the object of our pursuit of pleasure. That is, we, we pursue Him to give Him pleasure. We have been created for His pleasure, and the point is, it is possible to please God. Now, I say that and you go, yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. It is possible. To please God. You remember when you first met the person who had become your spouse? And for most of you, the fact that that person became your spouse, you walked away from that and you said something like, I think she likes me. That's amazing. That's cool. She likes me. When I met Regine, it's, it's a long story. But when I met Regine, we were living in different states. I was, at the time, living in California. She was living in Washington, and I would soon thereafter move to Texas while she stayed in Washington. So we had a long-distance courtship, and this was before the Internet. This is at when you actually had to pay for phone calls by the minute. Um, so uh, that was the, the nature of our courtship. But when she was, we met in Southern California, and she was headed back to Washington. And as she's leaving, she hands me a card and says... By the way, just in case you ever want it, here's my address and my phone number. And there was no mistaking that. She likes me. She's interested. That's astounding. I actually found that card recently. It's like, I still have that card. 35 years later, 36 years later. That's so cool. Brothers and sisters, it's one thing for a spouse to find pleasure in you. The God. Of the universe. Finds pleasure in you. He knows you. Like no one else knows you. Regine knows me intimately well. She doesn't know everything. She doesn't know every thought that rolls through my brain. She doesn't know every inclination of the heart. I mask things well. Just so do you. Don't we? We hide things. God sees it all. And we can still be pleasing to Him. Isn't that remarkable? How can you be pleasing to God? Well, He tells us three things. Three means by which we can be pleasing to Him. You must come to Him by faith. You must come to Him. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For He who comes to God. You cannot... Be pleasing to him without faith. You must believe in him. He emphasizes that aspect of faith twice in this verse, right? Without faith, the beginning of the verse, middle of the verse, he who comes to God must believe. You must be dependent. You must be reliant upon him. He is not saying it's it's um, it's simply difficult to please God if we don't have faith in him. He is saying it is impossible if you don't believe him. If you don't trust him, you cannot please him. Ah, turn it around. But if you trust him, he finds pleasure in you. He delights in you. So someone says there is absolutely no substitute for faith. You have to believe. You have to come to Him. You have to want Him. You have to desire Him. Why do you do the things that you do in life? Why do you um, guys in the evening, you see your wife moving around the house, putting, putting the kids to bed, putting the grandkids to bed, Cleaning the house, straightening things out. And why do you Why do, you do one of two things? Why do you keep your feet propped up on the ottoman and enjoy your show or your book? Or why do you get up and say, Hey, honey, how can I help you? Can I take the trash out? Can I, can I clean the bathroom? My wife doesn't allow me to clean the bathroom because I, I don't clean up the speck, but maybe you do. Can I do this for you? Can I do that for you? Why do you do that? You do what you do. Because you want what you want. Your actions are driven by desires. And your desires are driven by a belief system. You do what you do because you want what you want. Everything you do is driven by a longing, a desire. And that desire is driven by a belief system. You do what you do because you want what you want. And you want what you want because you believe what you believe. And the writer of the Hebrews is saying... You live by faith. You keep hanging on to Christ. Don't give up in persecution because you want something better than just getting out of the persecution. You want Jesus because you believe Jesus will reward you. That's where he's appealing to them. You must come to him. You must desire him. You must want him. And what should you desire about him? What must you believe about him? You must believe. This is the second point about how to please him. You must believe that he is God. The the writer throws something in in the middle of this verse that's pretty open-ended. He says, he who comes to God must believe that he is. I think the the, uh, translation that was read for the scripture reading was the ESV, I think, and it says, must, must believe that he exists. That's, that's an interpretation that goes a little bit further than the text. The text simply says, believes that he is. And typically when we say, he is, we go, yeah, t- tell me. Ryan Bishop is what? Well, he's a pastor. He's a husband. He's a dad. He's a mentor. He's a counselor. He is a faithful friend. There's an object that follows the verb, but there's no object here. It just says he is. And the supposition is in part, well, it means that we believe that he exists. But I think the writer intends us to understand far more than that. He intends us to understand everything that g- makes God, God, is what we believe about him and what, what he's gonna do in this chapter, and we don't have time to unfold it all, is he's gonna show God in all kinds of different vignettes and show him, for instance, in verse three, he is the creator. Chapter 10, verse 37, he is the one who preserves his people. Chapter 11, verse 4, he is the sovereign judge. Chapter 11, verse 5, he is the one who is not subject to death. Verse 6, this verse, he is the one who is the rewarder. Verse 7, he is the one who is judge. And he's going to do this all the way through this chapter. God is, and then he's going to explain who God is. And he says, that's who you must believe in. You must believe that he is everything that he says he is. Note this. We call Hebrews 11 the hall of faith. Hebrews 11 is not not a a chapter about great people. Because as you read through this list, almost without exception, they are very flawed people. Moses is flawed. Enoch, we don't know anything about him that's flawed. Um. Noah was flawed. Abraham was flawed. Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, all flawed. Rahab, deeply flawed. I talked about her, preached about her last week at my church. Um, deeply flawed, broken people. This chapter isn't about great, about great people. This ch- chapter is about a great God behind ordinary people. And that's what makes it encouraging for us. I don't need to be someone great in order to survive in this world. I just need a great God. And oh, guess what? That's exactly what I have. We must believe that he is. Why is believing God is so important? Because I don't know about where you live, but where I live. And I don't mean Granberry. As if Granberry has particular problems, though it does have problems. I mean, at my house, in my bed, in my study, there's a guy who is prone to forget. Says one writer, in a thoroughly secular society, and because of our preoccupation with material things, it is easy for us to ignore God's existence. So I ask you, what are the pressures, what are the temptations in your life that are pulling you Away from Christ and making you say, God can't, it's too much, it's too big, he doesn't care. And that is the place where you must dig in and say, God is, fill in the attribute, able to accomplish faithfulness in me in this circumstance. Brothers and sisters, believing in God's ability and sovereignty is fundamental to our endurance. We will quit and we will give up, which is exactly what the readers of this epistle were tempted to do. We will quit and give up if we don't think God is able. You must believe that He is. And then lastly, how else must we think about Him? What else must we do to be pleasing to Him? You must believe that He is gracious. Not only do we believe that He is God, that He is transcendent and great, but we believe that He is good and that He is kind. Notice what the text says, Hebrews eleven six. We believe that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Now note this, He doesn't reward everyone, does He? Notice what He says. He rewards those who seek Him. If you don't seek Him, if you don't pursue Him, he will not reward you. The implication is take you into heaven. That's, that's what this whole chapter is about. 36 and 37. Uh, you have need of endurance of chapter 10. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and he will not delay. He, he will come. He will take you home. He will give you the promises of eternity. But only... If you pursue him in faith, if you believe that he has promised through Christ to take you to heaven, if you don't pursue him, if you don't desire him, if you don't desire his salvation, he won't take you. He will not reward you. That's a reminder as well, brother, if you are not in Jesus Christ, if you have not trusted in Christ for your salvation, you desperately need him. That's your only hope. You can't reward yourself and there is no one else who is capable of rewarding you. There's no one else who can stand in for you except Jesus Christ. Flee to Him for your reward. Because, notice the text, He is a rewarder. That is, He is, He is a paymaster of faithfulness, says one writer. He pays, pays wages to the faithful. And, and, and understand, this isn't this isn't, well, if I do this, then God does this. This isn't me earning my salvation. He is a paymaster by grace. He gives by grace what we do not deserve and we cannot earn. He, He gives. He's a rewarder. This is not something that is merited. It is absolutely unmerited. He gives us to, to this. He gives us this because He desires to care for us to say that he is a rewarder is to recognize that he is gracious in his care of people. He is sympathetic towards us. He understands our plight. He understands our troubles. Chapter four, he's been, he's been making this case all the way through this letter, but chapter four, verse 14, notice this. Therefore, since we have, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast. Our confession Let's hold on. Don't walk away. Keep holding on because we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. We don't have a God in heaven who says I can't identify with them. We have one in heaven who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Christ was tempted to the full extent and the full power of Satan's temptation. How often. Or how much pressure. Needs to be put on you. Before you give in to temptation. I smoked some ribs the other night. Oh they were so fine. It did not take much temptation. To engage in gluttony that night. Right. There was, there was not a massive amount of pleasure, Pressure being put on me. To say you must be a glutton. My flesh willingly moved towards it. Listen, Christ endured the full onslaught of Satan and hell and never gave in to temptation. We don't understand the fullness of temptation that Christ endured. He understands temptation. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He understands. And you go to him. And you will find the grace. And the reward that you need. For your circumstance. So how does this verse relate to the topic of living by faith? If we want to live by faith in God. We believe. One. That he is God. And that he is able to do everything that we need. In every situation. We believe that it is wise to go to Him and we pursue Him and we orient our lives towards Him, understanding that just as how He cared for Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and Rahab and a host of unnamed people, He will also care for us. And we understand that He will always do good. The question is, are you seeking your pleasure outside these walls in what the world has to offer? are you pursuing Him as your pleasure? We live in a, a deeply troubled and a deeply troubling world. And we also have our own personal troubles as well. Hardships that are unique to us. Hopes that are unmet. Struggles with sin that seem unrelenting. Things that don't go the way we plan. What are we going to do? you going to go to Amazon for more purchases? You're going to turn on Fox News for hope? That's supposed to elicit laughter. Seriously, any news channel going to give you hope? I... On, I I have on my phone, I get the news flashes, news updates from multiple news sources. And it's like, I see one word and I go, swipe, gone. It's bad for my heart. You're going to go there for hope? You're going to go on vacation for rest? You're going to go to relationships for satisfaction? You're going to go to work for encouragement? C.S. Lewis was right. We are far too easily pleased in this world. Let's follow the pattern of Enoch. Let's follow the pattern of Hebrews 11. And let's find our pleasures, not in the trinkets and temptations of this world, but let us find our pleasure in nothing less than the God and Creator of this world and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for this word. We've gone to it through it far too quickly. But what we have seen is encouraging and helpful to us because we've seen an example of one who did live by faith in a perverse world. He made it. And he exhibited a particular kind of faith that was rewarded in such an astounding way. And it gives hope to us that even as Enoch lived by faith, so we can also. And this word is also correcting to us, admonishing us, hope giving to us because it has given us a a pattern to follow. Uh, We want to please you. We know we should please you. And you've told us how we can please you. Would you equip us by your grace to live as those who believe that you are and that you are a rewarder of those who find their pleasure in you And that you will take us home. Father, would we persist in the adverse circumstances in which we individually find ourselves in such a way that you too will say of us, I find pleasure in him. I delight in him who is my faithful servant. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.